Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. We are joined today by Emma Griffiths for her second appearance on the show. She was one of the masterminds for the SARS-CoV-2 metadata in one of our previous episodes. Check it out if you missed it. We are also joined by Joel Cariso, making his first appearance. Joel currently works with BUMIRU as a bioinformatics data scientist, and in his previous life, he was a tenured professor at the University of Lisbon. Nabil and myself, Lee, are your hosts today, and so let's get into it. And we're talking about ontologies today. What are they? Why do we use them? To start us off, we came up with a little activity different from our other episodes. So Joao, if you would, wouldn't mind starting us off, could you tell us how to say, good morning all, I love bioinformatics in Portuguese? Bons dias a todos. Eu... Awesome. And Emma, you volunteered to do it in French. I sure did. Bonjour à tous. J'aime la bioinformatique. And I'll do one in Spanish. Buenos dias todos. Me gusta bioinformatica. So I asked the questions earlier. Just help us get into it. Who wants to give us the first definition of what an ontology is? I can take a crack at that. Ontologies are a controlled vocabulary where all of the fields are organized into a hierarchy. And there are logical relationships in between all of the, the terms. And these different relationships can link information together in different types of ways. Some are more complex than others. Some are, some are quite simple. So ontologies are great ways to standardize information, structure information, and to query information. Joel, what's your hot take on that definition? I, I fully agree. I always, for the shorter version, like ontologies describe uh, objects and the relationship between objects, but I think Hema was right on the spot because those relationships are complex. And even between two items or objects, there are, you can describe several levels of relationships. And you can even describe relationships between relationships. So relationships can become the objects themselves, in a sense. It's quite abstract in its essence, what an ontology is, but it's, it's also as a very critical, and I think one of the, the reasons that uh, we need to use it is, like, like we discussed before, computers are them, right? Yeah. So we just said in three different languages the same thing. How do we map the relationships between the things to a common meaning? For a computer, well, Google Translate can do, but he needs to what those relationships are. And if it's direct translation is one thing, but if it gets into semantics and different interpretations and particular expressions, then it's much more complex. Why should we care about it? Is there an ontology for hatred of ontologies? No, there's not a, an ontology for hatred of ontologies. There's ontologies for bad words. Ontology is pretty much for everything. And that's because ontologies aren't really a, a new technology. 
right? They're, they're basically a way of understanding the existence, right? They're very philosophical, but they do have this practical application of being able to structure information. Many people have implemented ontologies for structuring information for different kinds of projects from, I think, the, the U.S. Department of Defense, Google, Lots of different companies and agencies have implemented ontologies, but the issue is, is that usually people use ontologies, like I've already mentioned, in an agency-specific way. And the way you design or build or architect your ontologies really affects the way that they can be used and the, the way that they can interoperate. So if you don't build or construct your ontologies in the same way, they don't work together. You still end up with these silos of information. Even though the information is structured, it's not structured in a, in a compatible or an interoperable way. There are efforts out there in the community to build ontologies in a consistent way, but maybe that's a bit of a deep dive for, for right off the top of the show. But yeah, why do you care about ontologies? Because, just because of that, because they're a way to create interoperability between data sets and between databases and between humans, actually. I don't think that we even need to go that further to, to need the ontologies. Basically, this is a microbial bioinformatics podcast. So I know mm -hmm. that all the bioinformaticians love Excel sheets, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the thing is, how, if we would love to have the data well formatted in a way that is consistent, that we can process and understand exactly what each field is, right? Yeah. Uh, we can do that inside on our own Excel sheet for the person that is doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But we cannot pass it uh, in a proper way that is comprehensible and we cannot query to different Excel sheets directly. So the ontology does what Emma <laughs> said. We can, if we have ontologies that are truly interoperable. That means that actually you can cross the meanings and definitions between two different parts or fields together for mm -hmm. extra value and knowledge. That's right? right. And I think that it also speaks to one of the points that you made earlier. It's the meaning of words, right? You can have the same word mean different things to different people. If you're trading spreadsheets between different agencies that are represent different sectors like animal health and veterinary care and human health and the agricultural sector the same words can mean very different things and oh, the yeah. computer doesn't know that right yeah. the computer only knows what you tell it it's really that equivalency in meaning that it's that's really important it's not just text searching oh right? yes that gets so you yes trouble. as you know i entered in in ontologies because of the a little calling algorithms, exactly because of that problem, mm -hmm. right? So it's, and my PhD was basically microbial typing. It's, I know it's a Chen area for many of my informaticians, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. But the thing is, people say terms and assume it's the same thing when it's not. It happens a lot of time in things like, we have these strains or we have these isolates. Is it the same thing? Is mm -hmm. it the same thing in this context than the other? What level of knowledge does it imply having one thing or the other? It's different. But I think for me, the, the, most, the best antidote is if you define what is an allele or what is a loci. And this mm. is the same not only for gene-by-gene -gene methods, but also for SNPs. I remember that if you ask someone from human genetics what is a SNP definition, you'll get something different from microbial bioinformatics, and it will depend also from 
people to people and what programs they, they use. So the definition now, what a SNP is, can be very abstract. But if you want to know exactly what it means, I have a SNP in this position, in this context, then it's tied to all the process that you obtain, that you use to obtain that specific SNP, mm. right? It's a more complex it's the set of tools and parameters used that define that SNP. And if you're not using the same parameters or tools, then it, the, the definitions are not really interoperable between, the, between different researchers. That's right. And one of the things that I didn't mention in the definition earlier is that one of the nice things about ontologies is that every term is always really well-defined and they, you can disambiguate the meanings of terms using IDs. Every term in the ontology gets an ID. So if you know, one of the examples that we use when we give talks on ontologies is the, the usage of the word biscuits, right? If you talk about biscuits in the US and biscuits in the UK, they're, they're two different things, right? A biscuit in the US is kind of more like what I would call a scone, but whereas a biscuit in the UK is like a, what I would call a cookie, right? So using ontologies, these are very different things, but you can disambiguate these items using IDs. Another example is, you know, we, we were helping to design an ISO standard for the use of whole genome sequencing for food microbiology. And we were responsible for the metadata section. And one of the issues that came up was being able to disambiguate what is a strain from what is an isolate, right? And if you start digging around in the, the public repositories and looking up their definitions, they don't provide much clarity on the, on the being able to really articulate the meaning of words is very important. Another example, when we were standardizing some metadata for an interagency project, I came across this one example and it, this one entry that somebody had, had said that the sample was from animal layer crumb. And I was like, what? That must be the crumbs at the bottom of a bag of animal feed. So that's what I standard, that's, I, I rewrote it as that. And then the people came back to me and they're like, no, like this is wrong. And what it is, is it, animal layer crumb, it's, it's a special type of feed for chickens that are like layers as opposed to broilers. But if you don't have that specialized knowledge in that field, that's jargon, right? And, and we see metadata, it's full of jargon. So if you don't have that specialized knowledge, again, it comes back to that meaning of words. You can really misinterpret what's going on. And it's that metadata that provides the context for interpreting your genomics information. So, you know, mistakes like that, it seems like semantics when we're talking about standardizing metadata, but it can have a big impact if it skews, you know, your understanding of what's happening in the real world. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think that... Uh... Basically, uh, and you know that, Hema, for me, it, I, I consider it is the price that we have to pay to speed up things and move it to the next level. And okay, well, that's the other thing. So everyone always says this is the price we have to pay and, and talk about ontologies like they're bad words. But I just, I love, I love ontologies. I love standardization. And I, I mean, part of it's probably because I'm nosy and I just want to look at people's data. I find, I find the, the whole world of semantics and, and data structures fascinating. So I guess it's good that I'm doing that and, and you're not. <laughs> no, no, I, I fully understand what you say because I always hated philosophy in high school, but actually <laughs> I feel that uh, that uh, ontology is close to philosophy. Oh, and, they are. Uh, since we are all PhDs here, right? I finally understood while doing ontologies 
why why we are PhDs because you know it's uh, the deep meaning of the terms actually has lots of repercussions down downstream and sometimes on the analysis. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to get the best data possible for some inputs, and uh, then we have to have the things very well defined to avoid the, the very famous garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't say it as the bad word. I always said it that if, if ontologies work, it's the kind of thing that people won't even know that it's over there, right? Yeah. It's like the t TCP IP protocols or the web protocols are now the very, the Zoom encoding exactly. <laughs> protocols that should be in the background gluing everything together is there a, is there an analogy then like if if there's is there like an invisible ontology layer that i'm always using and i'm not aware of it when i'm doing bioinformatics well when you use google they have a proprietary ontology so you probably are using ontologies every day and you don't realize it so like i said they're implemented in all kinds of technologies and industries it's just it's it's ontologies are slow in, into moving into public health. And so I think that's why a lot of us don't really know about them so much. Yeah. But, but yeah. But that, most people see it as a huge overhead for organizing and putting the data in the right format. And in my experience, most people are just doing their jobs and they are doing that. They assume that that part needs to be done quick because if they are seeing patients, if they are nurses, if there are people doing the, the other job, for them, this is just the other the other thing, right? There's usually no payoff for the one doing the sample collection. It's all very well yeah. to have a wonderful ontology that us as data scientists can play around with and write wonderful papers and say all of that. But the poor sucker who has to fill that form in, in the first place, he doesn't get a look in on what's going on. It doesn't matter. So why bother? And I think that's still a massive hurdle. I fully agree. I fully agree because uh, like I said, the end user needs, the thing needs to be transparent in ontology application. And I think there's even a, a layer on top of, of ontologies that uh, things like natural language interpretation yeah. and disambiguation that can be done to ease that, that difficulty. But uh, actually the use of, of smarter interfaces for data entry should also alleviate that overhead that, that you mentioned in the bill. But I, I'm absolutely right. So what is the added value for the, the last, for the person in the field collecting the data for us to play with? that needs to be shown through the results and they should be also reported back to them and to see look thanks for you doing this right we managed to do this otherwise it would be impossible which is sometimes very hard to achieve and almost utopic right there's a number of things that you just mentioned that really resonate with me so the you know one of them is the whole chicken and the egg problem to, to convince people that ontologies are useful you really need a good use case but to build up ontologies that are useful for people you needed that use case to begin with to create a useful ontology, but then you need to be able to demonstrate to the people that ontologies are useful for them to provide you with a good use case. When we often talk to folks, we'll say, you know, we can build the vocabulary for you. We can work with you to help standardize your stuff. And they're like, well, what can, you know, what can you do? What, like, what can you do for us? And like, can you show us some examples? And we're like, I, well, I don't, what do you need? Tell me what you need, and then we can work with you to, to, to fix it. So it's kind of, you know, this vicious cycle of not having good examples for people, but you don't have good examples because 
you know, you don't know what their issues are, so you haven't been able to solve them yet. But also coming back to this idea of metadata kind of being a second-class citizen, and that everybody gets really excited about the genomics results, but metadata, people don't feel they get bang for their buck investing in the metadata side of things. I think that's a very old-fashioned thing now of just producing a genome used to be worth something as a technical marvel. It's simply not. Generating sequencing data is completely useless without good contextual information. And I'm probably speaking to the choir by saying that, but just categorically, like, we have to get better at this sort of thing. Otherwise, we're going to just do very, very boring publications. Oh, yes. And, and we have also the question of scale, right? It used to be the case that you, you, you managed to sequence one or two or three genomes and publish based on that. And now we are just churning and churning genomes. So I think the metadata is actually more, more valuable than the genomic data per se right now. Because now the genomic data is easy, but the metadata is hard. So maybe well, it's mean, the next frontier. <laughs> well, I mean, if, you want, if anyone wants a practical application of what this is like, next time you open up a publication with a phylogenetic tree on it, just put your hand over the side of the tree that has all of the little blips that show you what the country is, mm -hmm. all of the color coding. Just put your hand over that bit and just look at this spiky little figure of the tree itself and tell me what does that tell you? It tells you nothing. And mm -hmm. that's what the sequencing data tells you. Without the contextual information, there is no contrast. There's nothing to say, any linkage between genotype or phenotype. There's nothing to talk about what is going on in different niches. There's nothing to talk about what's happening over time. That's all out the window. And if that is not high fidelity data coming in, you're mm -hmm. not going to be able to do it. You can't impute it after the fact. It, it just, you just can't make it up. I don't think it happens. I think slowly people have, you know, slowly people have understood that you can't just magic this stuff out of thin air. You need to do better sampling and have these sort of systems in place to begin with. And we are seeing a change where people take this more seriously, but it's slow. Yeah. yeah. And I think that people tend to think of metadata as just like the, a sample came from a chicken, but it's really the methods as well. Right. So when you were just men mentioning purpose of sampling, why was it for a cluster investigation? Was it for surveillance? Were you monitoring? Was it for an outbreak investigation? You know, that affects the, the samples in your tree and it affects it affects the interpretation. I, I think we need to give metadata more more street cred. And, yeah. you know, we, we often get together at conferences and we talk about the nuances of each other's tools. They're the genomics analysis tools, and there's never any mention of, of metadata tools. And that's, to me, that's like the other half of the problem. And I know people, again, because ontologies and standards and things are kind of a bad word in the community. I know people... <laughs> They're not going to put the butts in the seats, right? They're not. Yeah, it's yeah, not that you're not sensations. That, that's interesting that you raise that because do you think that gene ontology, the famous or infamous go, <laughs> is sometimes the cause of that bad rap? I well, no. I mean, I think if if you have an experience with something that's tricky, you're gonna obviously say, oh, this whole concept or this whole field is, is not garbage, but you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's not, not as great. <laughs> right. But, that, but that's one example, right? Like how many aligners are there? How many, you know, we have lots of different tools for, for similar things and people enjoy hearing about those things, but you, we, all you know is the gene ontology. Like you just, like the, you just asked me now where are, are ontologies used? 
in everyday life. And I, you know, I think they just don't get much attention. And so it's that whole thing where you, you don't experience them and you don't, you know, you don't see them in action. I mean, I, I, I think if, I think if anyone is going to, is going to get upset about ontologies, they have to then stop using things like keg or cog <laughs> or or even some of the the HMM databases like PFAMs and so on, which are all basically uh, controlled language for describing gene function. And we very happily take our, you know, protein predicted genes and shove it into those tools and look at the comings and goings of the different categories and and put that in, oh, it's a great result and whatever. All of that heavy lifting of of structuring those networks was done by someone else Mm -hmm. and that analysis that someone else someone later is capable of doing is because someone took the time long before to to get that to work so and we're building on top of it we change the you know some of it's wrong there's always issues you keep changing it you keep tweaking it as we learn more and more but that's the platform and that's the power that you can get that if you just try to make, get some sort of order to your data before you get too bogged down with the, with your different analysis. Yeah, and and you know, you're right. I think that all of these, you know, ontologies and community standards, they do build on top of each other, right? I, if you think of the kind of swirling free text system there was originally, you know, every minimal metadata, minimal data for matching, every every step improves the system. But you've got to have people using it and complaining about it and then doing something about it, right? And the other point to make is that, you know, ontologies are just, they're, they're essentially files, right, of instructions of how to structure information. You need a tool to implement the ontologies, right? Or you need to build the ontology into the back end of your system. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that there, there is a heavy lift in using, I mean, you can use your ontologies just to standardize your metadata, right? That, that's still a heavy lift, like going and, and con, you know, converting what you've got in your database to this other standard. That's, that's not trivial. That takes a while. But if you can have a tool that would do that for you, you can start to implement these things a lot easier. And, and what Joao said before about, you know, ontology should be invisible and should be working in the background. That is absolutely true. Like you shouldn't have to think about ontologies. They should just be there working for you, but somebody has to have engineered them into your system yeah. or given you a tool that implements them. And I think I, we just don't have many people working on that right now. And yeah. that's why we don't yeah. have good things, right? I mean, you have lots of people working on the genomic side of things, but you don't have a lot of people working on the ontology metadata side of things. So, yeah. But but uh, I think that one thing that should be a warning is this is not a defining an ontology is not the kind of thing that a single person can sit in a room doing it. It needs yeah. to be a collaborative effort of discussion between the persons using the ontology and using what you need to to have agreement. And there's also that social aspect of having you know several humans to agree into something. It's mm-hmm. always always a problem, but yeah. it's an important activity because. Lots of the times, if people disagree, that means that some some things need to be disambiguated further, mm. and people have to understand that. So, but they they sometimes feel that they are losing time just discussing things instead of putting them in, into practice. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I like Nabil's examples. You're right. You know, we have CAG, COG, GO ontologies. You have all this this level of things that people could use, right? 
but they only use the part they mostly the part they understand, which is kind mm -hmm. of the controlled vocabulary part. We now have the power to, if you are doing climate change and you have strain data, and if you can link climate data with the sampling location, with the with the strain location, with the genomic drift in that strain of the, of a strains in that location, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then you can only have to do that if you have everything very well defined and you know that everything is talking the same thing. Like right. like like we said, the computers are dumb, right? <laughs> and we have to tell them everything. Hey guys, I'm going to cut you off there. We're going to talk about the practical applications next time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Tune in on the next episode for practical applications. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. <laughs>